Hello, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, Member Engagement Director at the National Association of Independent Schools. This month, we're talking about promoting good governance, lessons learned in leadership, and more with Melinda Bin, Head of School at the French American International School and International High School in San Francisco, California. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and I really appreciated Melinda's insights on selecting a board chair and orienting new board members, along with her approach of leading from a place of love and joy. I really appreciated her perspective on how ignorance can sometimes be an asset early in the career of a head, and how she focuses so intentionally on supporting teachers and aspiring leaders at her school. Uh, There's also a somewhat surprising answer to a question about what she's read that has helped her in her leadership journey, and a great quote about a whale in a pool. I hope you enjoy. Well, Melinda, welcome to Member Voices. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. So I wanted to start by talking to you about how you foster good governance at your school and how you approach your relationship with your trustees and your board chair. So so let's start there. When you partner with your board chair, how do you approach that and, and what does that look like? It's such an important question. I think when we come into the headship, we often don't know how important the relationship with the chair and with the board of trustees generally will be. And it's, it's really critical. And what I would say more generally is our trustees are volunteers. They are giving their time to something that they love, our schools, because of the experience of their children in the school, because of the experience of the school's mission, because of their belief in what happens in our school. So we have something wonderful in common. And that's, that's really important. And so I think that's the point of orientation for successful work with a board of trustees. With a board chair, I mean, the more time you invest in that relationship, the better. And each chair is different. In my nine years here at French American and International, I have had three chairs. I have been incredibly fortunate in all three. They've been wonderful. And each one of them worked really differently, approached problems really differently. So I have had to learn to partner with each of them differently. You know, our job is to adapt to them, um, just as they, I'm sure, are making significant adaptations to us. So I have always tried to get to know the person who is my chair as well as possible, to discern how they like to work, and then to try to smooth the path, especially initially with that, by doing things in a way that help them, you know, feel successful and understand what I'm dealing with. And that's that's how I come into that work. And any other traits of what you think a good partnership uh, looks like or on the flip side, any potential, you know, red flags based on your experience that, you know, you would need to really dive into and examine more closely or nip in the bud right away? Well, I think there's lots to work on initially, you know, with a board chair. The role is different than the average trustee. So your, your board chair has likely been a trustee, but here you're really pulling the curtain back and they're seeing inside the workings of the school. And the best board chairs appreciate that and enjoy that. 
but don't engage with that, right? They don't try to do the work. They try to help you think about how you're going to do the work. So anything that you can do at the outset to foster that stance is going to make your board chair feel successful and make you feel really good about your work with your chair. So I try to be really explicit, you know, asking my chair to help me think, asking them what I have not thought about, asking them if they heard what I just said, you know, on the street outside the school, what would they, what would they wonder about? What felt incomplete? They can they can listen to us and show us where the holes are in our arguments or where, where we haven't considered something that's really important. I, I see them as essential thought partners in that way. They're also spokespeople. And I think, you know, learning about your board chair, about how your chair likes to communicate with other trustees and the larger community, and then helping them do that well so that if there is an issue on the board, if a trustee is, you know, struggling in the role, overstepping a little, finding it hard to separate uh, the parent role and the trustee role, any of the really typical things that can happen for any of us in trusteeship, you want your chair to feel like they have a toolkit to approach that and that they are being asked to, to address these kinds of issues in ways that are comfortable for them, where they're going to feel successful. You know, some chairs like to speak really directly to someone. Other people have to kind of work themselves towards that. And so you have to partner with your chair, find their style, and then position them well for the work they have to do. I wanted to also ask you what it looks like when you have a really good, solid partnership. I'm not sure what that's looked like at your school, if you, if you have a specific example of that, or if you just want to speak generally of when it's really good and working well, what does that look like in your experience? In, in the best of relationships with the board chair, it's, it's almost a marriage. It's, it truly is a relationship, right? So each one, each of us brings our strength to that work and can sort of shore up the other in areas where, where they're not as strong. And that sounds sort of idealized, and it may just be my own felicitous experience with my chairs. But I think that's really true. I think of COVID, for example, of going through the pandemic, and I know we don't really like talking about it anymore. But COVID really tested, I think, the relationships of many of many chairs and heads. It, it tested all of us. Um, here in San Francisco, we were very limited in our ability to get back to campus. Our Department of Health had very strict regulations. We were in lockdown for early. We were in a lockdown for a long time. We came back slowly. And our school was among the first schools to come back because early on, we worked together in our school to among the leadership team and then with my board chair and ultimately with the board generally to a commitment that we believed that in-person education was deeply valuable and that however we could come back, we wanted to do that. And the reason I bring this up is because that wasn't where we started. You know, initially, I think many people had really serious concerns about what it would mean to come back to campus during the pandemic. The local context here was very conservative in terms of health policy. We were masked until March of last year. And so... Our board had to work with that idea, and my board chair was a real partner in helping me do that. When working with your board chair, how do you ensure that you both stay in the appropriate lane, uh, if you will? Uh, what does that look like for you? 
Well, the more you can be explicit about that work, the better off you are. And that's, that's probably true of just about anything with your board chair. The more you can say, I'm wondering about our roles here, or that feels like work that I should be doing, right? Or conversely, it would be hard for me to do that work. That feels like work you should be doing. To get to a point where you can have that kind of candor in a conversation, you really have to have built a lot of relationships. And I think, I think the front loading of relationship there is important. I also think the selection process for a board chair is important. You have to worry, frankly, about someone who wants the job too much. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's not that I don't think people should want the job, but I do think, you know, people have to want it for the service rather than for, say, a particular agenda that they're bringing to the work. That's as true of a board chair as it is for a trustee. So it's being really discerning about your trustees and it's being really discerning about how you grow trustees and educate them once they're on the board, how you develop them, their understanding of trusteeship, their understanding of your school. That's on us. And then I think it's about working really hard early on to build the best possible relationship with your chair. So that when you run up against a question of role, you can speak about it, ideally with perfect candor. That's really interesting about the selection of, of the board chair. Can you talk more about how you approach orienting your board chair and then also your new trustees and new board members in general? Yeah, I just don't think you can take enough time with this. I think the more time that you spend helping trustees generally understand the role of trusteeship and the school and really being clear with them about the role that they play in your particular school. Trusteeship looks different in different places. Most of our trustees will not have been trustees somewhere else, or at least that's true in my school. Most of my trustees have not been trustees in another school or trustees at another nonprofit. So when they come into our school, on the one hand, it's a blank slate. On the other hand, it's a blank slate. So it's really up to us to educate them about trusteeship generally. And this is where NAIS provides such fabulous resources. And then trusteeship in our school. That looks different in different places. In a very small school, for example, trustees may be, may be actually very hands-on and involved with certain aspects of operations. There are schools where trustees help with marketing or provide services with design or architecture, landscape planning, really concrete things. In our school, which is large, we're well-resourced in those areas. So trustees who come in and say, I'm an accountant, I'd love to help with the books, that isn't what we are looking for. What we are looking for is for them to bring a quality of thought to the conversation, to function like our think tank. We're a large school. We have almost 1,100 students. We have over 830 families, 225 employees. There are bigger schools, but for an independent school, we're pretty large. And what that means is we have an economy of scale here that allows us to do certain things. So even an experienced trustee coming from a smaller environment might expect to be more hands-on. So when we're redirecting or when we're opening people up to that, we also have to make sure that 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 think tank work is exciting, that it's interesting, that it's engaging, that trustees feel that their work is bearing fruit. And that often involves the head of school narrating back to trustees. When we met the last time as a board, 
I really benefited from the ideas about, or it really helped me to hear you think about this. And following up individually with trustee, you said this, and I wondered about that. Can you say more to me? Can you share your experience of that? You know, these people are giving their time to our schools. They want to feel like they're adding value. So I think that's really important. Mm. Educating a board chair, bringing a board chair into that is equally important. The, the specific nature of that role um, means that you have to take a little bit of time with it. Leadership through partnership is a wonderful uh, program that NAIS offers and that has been super helpful to me with board chairs. Um, a regular meeting with your board chair. Don't miss it. You miss it at your peril. Um, and just taking really every opportunity to make sure that not only are we telling them about our problems, but that we're also telling them about our successes and our delight. And how well is the board and the board's work understood at your school and, and in your school community? Do you have any sense of that? Well, I think that's always a place for work to speak, particularly about my school. We are an international school and an independent school and a French school here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, and that means many people are coming to us with no prior experience of independent education. So they are largely, are, you know, our families are largely public school educated themselves coming into our school uh, without sort of a, a background in independent school. So they may not understand. We can't assume that people come in and understand the role of the board of trustees. They, they won't. So highlighting the work of the board to the larger community is something that I think is also part of our role as this head. And, you know, an opportunity to do that anytime you're highlighting that work, you're highlighting the work of their strategic thinking, for example, their strategic planning capacity, you know, their long-term thinking, their visionary thinking, you're elevating not just the role of the board, but people's expectations of their work. Um, we're in strategic planning this year. That's been a wonderful opportunity for me to speak to the larger community about the role of the board. Um, you know, the board doesn't decide the fourth grade spelling curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. The board decides where we're trying to go as a school, given our 60-year history in this city, thinking about who we're going to be for the next 5, 10, 50, 60 years. Um, and that's a different place of thinking. Um, so, you know, we have to seize every opportunity to explain to our school community what it is that the board does. Do families have an opportunity to uh, interact with the, the trustees on a regular basis? Yeah, we invite trustees to lots of school events. We give them name tags. We ask them to wear them every chance they get. I don't want families only to experience the board as something over there, distant from them. They are their fellow parents, some of them. So we profile our board on our website. We share information about the work of the board in our yearly letter. We share information about new trustees coming onto the board in our yearly magazine. And then at events, I try to highlight their presence or ask them to speak about something, you know, depending on the event, which again, sort of highlights their work and their role. Well, I wanted to also ask you about your role outside of working with the trustees and your board chair, although we know that's a big part of it. But before I, I, I go in that direction, any other best practices or pitfalls regarding board chair head relations or promoting good governance that you found? You know, a more experienced head than I am once said to me earlier in my tenure, 
if you don't put a whale in the pool, people will watch the fish. And it took me a while to figure out what she was driving at. But I think, I think what she was saying is you have to give people the right things to think about and work on. And I would just say that we need to think about our board of trustees as a group of people that we are not just working with, but for whom we are developing an agenda. It's, it's not quite a classroom situation, but it is also a classroom situation. We shape that conversation. So trying to give the board the most meaningful work possible, putting them to work on the things that you ultimately want them working on. I know it sounds really obvious, but if we invite them into conversations where they don't belong, it's hard to redirect them. If we put them to work on the meaningful, visionary, generative, strategic work of governance, that's where they begin to experience the joys of trusteeship. And that's where they want to stay. Put a whale in the pool or else they'll watch the fish. Yeah, I like that a lot. So in your role as head, obviously you you handle a lot of different responsibilities as you lead your school and your school community. And I feel like leadership is one of those words that, that we hear a lot, kind of like innovation, right? And, and I'm sure there are others where we talk about it a lot, but it might mean different things to different people. I'm, I'm curious what, if you had to define it or describe it, what leadership means to you? It is one of those words, isn't it? You know, one of those things expanded about. And it looks different in different situations, right? Different communities define it differently. Different times act for different kinds of leadership. But I think it can't be entirely situational. I think there's got to be, you have to have as a leader, a sense within yourself of what your work is about and what that's going to look like done well. And for me, wellsprings in my leadership have really been this idea of delight. You know, I've been in school since I was five, and, and that's a long time now. I'm a school person. This environment nourishes me. I believe in the project of school, and I delight in the work of school. And that doesn't mean that every aspect of my work is delightful. But I truly delight in it. And there's such joy in that. There's, there's love in that. So for me, that's, that's something that nourishes my leadership. I try to lean into that when it's hard. Try to lean into the fact that I, I chose this and I chose it for really good reasons. And those reasons are grounded in love and joy. The other thing is, you know, is to think about what you want your leadership to look like. I came into this work as a teacher. The classroom was, was a sacred space in which my students and I grew and learned. And I learned with them. I think of my first year of teaching. I think of, of this year and how I've grown over the years. So my pathway was through education. And that is my truest self, is being a teacher. So for me, leadership is an act of teaching, right? It's an educational act. You know, the content may not be literature as it was when I began teaching, but the project is, is similar, right? The work is similar, is helping people arrive at the capacity to learn things, to do new things, and to do their best work together. And that when I'm working there in that way, I am my most authentic self. 
as a leader. And I think when we are our most authentic selves as leaders, we have the most capacity to transform, to strengthen, to improve our schools. I think when we arrive sort of thinking about, you know, how will I make this better? Of course, we always want to make things better. But if, if we arrive with a deficit mentality about the work that we're going to do, we're always fixing. And I don't choose to think about my work as a leader as fixing. I choose to think about it as teaching, which is a different stance. Can you talk a little bit more about your your communication style, how that fits in there and, and how you approach communicating with the different constituencies at your school? Well, anybody listening to this podcast would know that I'm a talker, right? And that's true. Of, <laughs> that's true of most heads of school. We're always being asked to say a few words somewhere. We get very good at a few words. I think the way that you communicate in your school has to depend on how people can hear you. That looks different in different places. You have to be willing to say whatever truth needs to be said. You have to be willing to tell people what work has to be done. That's absolutely essential. But how you communicate with people depends on how people are able to hear you in that place. I'm in an international school, a multilingual environment where a French, American, and international school with a bilingual program, pre-A through 12, and also an English pathway through the high school. Some of my communicating is in French, aided by very talented native speakers who assist me. Some of my communicating is in English, but all of it is about international education and about the, the larger mission of our school, which is around critical thinking and cross-cultural communication um, and really making citizens of the world through this education. So that's the way that I come at any communications that we do. In other settings, in a progressive school, for example, you might talk about the belief system about how children learn. In a religious school, you might be drawing on a shared faith. I think you have to find what people hold in common and you have to speak to them in that language for them to understand you. I'm curious if you always saw yourself as becoming a head of school. I know you said you started out as teaching, but I'm not sure if head of school was in, in the plans potentially. And I'm curious if you always saw yourself as a leader and how that's evolved over time. When I started as an educator, I didn't see myself as a head of school. Partially that was because I think the first 10 years of my career uh, in education, we're in international schools overseas. And at that time, there weren't a lot of women heads of school, frankly. So I don't know that I envisioned myself that way. Like many people who can't see themselves, who don't see themselves represented in leadership, somebody had to tell me that they saw me there for me to realize that was what I wanted to do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember a conversation where someone said, you should be doing this work. It was a, a leadership role in my school. You should be applying for that. And that was revelatory to me because, again, uh, most of the people doing that work weren't women at that time. And so that was, that was an important conversation for me. It was also important for me to see women appointed to the headship and to realize that that was a goal that, that was realizable. 
that sounds, I'm sure that sounds ridiculous now to some listeners, but you know, it was different then. So part of it was being told that I could do that by someone who could see me there when I didn't see people who looked like me there. And part of it was seeing other women be successful in that work. Those were both very powerful things for me. You asked about whether I always saw myself as a leader. I suppose that I did see that I had those capacities. Though when I look back at what I thought leadership capacity was, I think I had a lot of learning to do. I think I was interested in making things better. You know, I think I was one of those people who often experienced frustration with the, the, the space between the way things could be and the way they were. And so this idea of leadership was probably always there. I don't think I had a personal theory of what that looked like for me for a while. I think you almost have to live that work to do it um, and to really fashion your kind of own understanding of what you as a leader are going to be. You mentioned a great piece of advice that you received of regarding governance earlier. Any other really helpful pieces of advice that you've gotten from colleagues or mentors are related to, to leadership or to headship in your role now? Well, I've, I think I've been so inspired by some of the leaders that I work with. And I think we find leaders in many, many places. Obviously, I've, I've been very fortunate to work uh, for great heads of school. And that, that has been wonderful for me. And I've seen extraordinary leadership in other places. You know, I've, I've watched my students rise to the occasion, for example, and, and really been inspired by them. I've had colleagues, I had a department chair early in my career whose approach to leadership kind of broadened my understanding of it because of the way that he did that work. So it's, it's less sort of sentences or, or a little sort of nuggets of advice and more watching other people do this work, building a sort of range of experiences of leaders and seeing how differently people can do this work, right? How incredibly differently it can be done and how the best leaders do that in a way that is true to them and right for their setting. That's, that's where the balance is. And as far as your experience, right, that's, that's one piece of it, mentorship and, and watching others and then learning from theirs. But as far as your experience at your school and doing the work, what's something that you wish that you had known earlier on as a, as a new head of school that you know now? Oh, there's so much. How much time have we got? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and I will also say, before I get to what I wish I had known, there is yeah. something really wonderful in that period of time when you don't know. You never get to be new in the same place twice, right? That seems obvious, but it means you don't know what can't be done. And there's something kind of marvelous in that. When I came in here at French American and International, I had been given the advice of meet with everyone. And I think that the people, you know, I had gone to institute with for new heads and, and many of the heads there, I said, do interviews with every single person. And that seemed like a great idea. And I don't think I ever really sat down and did the math on what that would mean in a community of my size. And so in my first year in the headship, across that first 
you know, those first nine months, I had 257 meetings with people, individual Mm -hmm. people, you know, members of staff, student groups, parents, parent groups, trustees. And I remember going back to the head who had sort of given me this advice and saying, wow, that was really took a lot of time. He was like, yeah, you know, 40 or 50 meetings. It takes a while. And that was when I realized, oh, <laughs> my, the scale here was different and I should have thought about that. But I didn't know it couldn't be done. That was invaluable. That mm. year of interviewing everybody. I mean, my calendar was a nightmare, but it was invaluable. <laughs> so I'll just say that not knowing, you know, not knowing that you can't attend everything in a pre-K to 12 school means that you run around that first year trying to make everything. There's something valuable about showing up a lot. Showing up means a lot. So I, I think that ignorance can also be an asset. And we only get to be ignorant in the truest sense of what that word means, right? Not knowing. We only get to be ignorant that way on our way. But of course, there are things you wish you had known. I think I wish mostly that I had known how long it takes to translate a new idea into something that that is sort of lived by a large community. I think it's important to understand that schools are places that run on twin rails, relationships and routines. And and those grooves are deep. And so when you are trying to do something new or do something differently, it's going to take time. Because I do, you know, every once in a while I run across a piece of paper or an email that basically uh, has my plan for something in that first year or two. And um, the timeline seems pretty unrealizable. But again, that energy, that was also valuable. And every once in a while you surprise yourself and actually get something really important done relatively quickly. So I think the time side of it was something that I wish I had known. I certainly coming into the headship did not know enough about governance. And I think that's true for so many heads. And I think now as a head, I see that as a core responsibility of mine is to make sure that my colleagues on our leadership team are having an opportunity to learn about governance, whether it's what I tell them as I sort of narrate out how I work with the board, but also bringing them into relationships with the board, giving them committees to staff or to assist me in staffing projects to lead where they partner with the board or they present to the board. I think that's really critical for emerging leaders to get that experience early and to be guided in that. And that just didn't happen enough for me. So it's something I really work on. I was going to ask about that. Are there other ways that you foster leadership development with your team, aspiring leaders on your team or with your board? You need to be identifying emerging leaders in other places. And that's something that I feel, you know, we, we need to continue to do. It's something we work at here. So it's, it's finding that person and saying, hey, I think you could do this work. Have you thought about applying for? It's creating pathways for people who might not often have them. Lower school teachers, for example, have access to very few pathways to leadership in traditional school structures. Here, we built a grade level team leader's role to give them direct work with the principal and a responsibility for a team to give people an opportunity to move through that experience, to try on leadership and see if they like that work. Some do, some don't, but the high school and middle school structure of department fosters that in a way that lower schools often don't. So we saw that need and we addressed it. 
it's also making sure that, you know, we have a goal setting process so that people are really thinking about where they want their career to go and what next responsibilities they might be preparing for and, and trying to meet folks there and provide them with those opportunities. And that, you know, I've been, I've been really privileged to support a number of emerging leaders um, to still be in touch with them in other roles, in other places. That's just really exciting work. Well, I'm especially interested to ask this question because of, of your background, you know, in literature. Uh, anything that you have read or are reading now that you feel like has really helped your growth as a leader? Well, during COVID, I read Churchill speeches a lot. I think we all felt a little bit Churchillian. Um, <laughs> but a, apart from that, I really will betray my origins as a, as a literature teacher and say, I don't think there's any better primer for leadership than Shakespeare. You know, knowing what bad leadership looks like uh, can help you start to think about what you think your good leadership will look like. And there is an abundance of leadership lessons in Shakespeare's plays, particularly, you know, in the tragedies and the histories. So, you know, you can read Shakespeare and think, well, you know, don't kill the king or don't give your kingdom to your daughters, but there's more to it than that. And so I've been really rewarded by reflecting on leadership in my own reading. And I would say, yeah, you know, go to the bard. He's the best. I love that. I, I have asked that question a lot and no one has ever said that surprisingly enough. So once an English teacher, always an English teacher. You know. <laughs> well, I wanted to close out our conversation with uh, three questions that are somewhat related. I'm curious, first of all, what would you say right now is your biggest challenge? What keeps you up at night? I think at this moment, supporting our faculty and staff in supporting students is the most critical work that we're doing as school leaders. Students are the business of the business. They are at the center of the work. As school leaders, we don't often act directly on students. It's the work we do with other adults in the community that, that has the most impact on students. I have an org chart at my school that is a series of concentric student circles with students at the center, and then the next one is faculty and family. And so I think supporting the adults who work with students right now is really critical. And that looks different. Teachers are generationally different now than we have a, a workplace in which we have often four generations of people working and teaching. They have different expectations, different needs. I also think that the current climate, you know, what we've been through in the last few years, the sort of erosion of trust in authority has a real wearing effect on adults as well as kids. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about how we support teachers, you know, certainly from compensation all the way through what their, what their day looks like at school to how we support their growth and learning and how we create a culture in which they feel that support, that it feels intentional. Um, that's a lot of my work right now. Mm -hmm. Important work. But where do you turn to for for inspiration? I know you talked a little bit about that when we were discussing how you approach your role and, and, and what your style is, but anything else that you turn to for inspiration in your work? Just take a walk down the halls of your school. 
right? If it's, if you're not inspired by that, then then you have different work to do. I am profoundly inspired by what is happening in, in this international education. Our students come in, they are not all speakers of French, they are not all speakers of English. They leave us bilingual in French and English if they come to us pre K through twelve and proficient in a third language. In our English track through the high school, our kids come in and learn to think in extraordinary ways because of the IB program that we offer. We are just so fortunate to be involved in such meaningful work. You know, you, you just have to get out of your office to find inspiration. And getting out of your office is also a really good idea. And finally, when you reflect back on your leadership journey, do you feel like you have a, a greatest achievement or of what are you most proud? Oh, gosh, that's for other people to decide, really. The daily work of leadership is daily work. Uh, you know, it's in little moments. It's the way you react when that person comes in your office and says, do you have a minute? And you know you're about to lose an hour of your day. Or when everything is going swimmingly and then it's not, right? You had a terrific plan. I mean, the terrific plans that I have made, God, they were beautiful, <laughs> you know, and the, that don't go as planned. It's the, it's, the, it's the sort of daily life of leadership, I think, that is the real work. And I don't think you can do it by spending your time thinking about greatest achievements. I am deeply proud of our school's work with students and of the children that we send into the world, you know, the young adults that leave us. Every graduation is a reminder of how much they are taking from us out into the broader world and how much the world needs them. I am very proud of the faculty and staff and leadership team that we have built and that we continue to build. You're always building it as people come and go. But the, the team of, of the most expert, most talented, most committed people ever been privileged to work with. I'm very proud of, of them and proud of, of our school for being able to, to recruit them and to engage them in this work. I'm extremely proud of my board to get back to the work that, that you know, the topic that we began this conversation with. They are the most interesting people I know. And they are putting together a really powerful strategy to lead our school forward. And I am proud of the way that together this whole community has weathered the challenges of the last few years. And I feel confident that we are equipping ourselves to meet whatever's coming. There are lots of initiatives and projects and particular things, and those are important, but we are stewards of a culture as leaders. That, that is the deepest work we do. We work on a culture, we work in a culture, we work on behalf of a culture. And so I am just super proud to be part of the culture of this extraordinary school. Well, Melinda, it's been really interesting and really encouraging. So I just thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much, Scott. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. 
Next month, we'll continue our focus on trustee relations by featuring a conversation from Independent School Magazine with Ashley Harper, head of school at Wakefield School, and her board chair. I hope you'll join us. You can find some related NAIS resources from this episode by visiting nais.org slash member voices. You can also keep an eye on that page for information about past and upcoming episodes. Please be sure to subscribe to Member Voices wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode and go back and listen to past episodes that you might have missed. If you have any feedback for us, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform to let us know how we're doing. You can also send us your thoughts and suggestions on what you'd like to hear on a future podcast episode by emailing membership at nais.org.